Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Michael Rechtenwald author of the book Beyond Woke, published in 2020 by the New English Review Press. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Kirk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we've spoken before in other forums, so, uh, forums, so I really, uh, so I, I know what kind of a, a very interesting discussion um, we can have and we've had before. Um, as our listeners know, I am joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Where are you located right now? Yeah, I'm in uh, the south side of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, right. Nice. Now, we always like to start off these interviews with you giving, uh, you know, telling us, uh, the audience, a little bit more about your background um, and particularly as it relates to this book. Can you do that for us? Oh, sure. Uh, so, you know, First, I should say that I'm a, I was an academic for 25 years. Uh, I've taught at uh, numerous universities. I taught at uh, Case Western Reserve University, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, I taught at uh, uh, North Carolina Central University, Duke University, and finally at a, a New York University, NYU. And uh, I was... Uh, uh, my my background uh, academically is in uh, what's called literary and cultural studies, which is a program in English, and uh, it's a uh, a very uh, politically charged uh, academic uh, uh, discipline. Uh, so I was uh, basically indoctrinated, or I should say, I became very steeped in uh, you know the theoretical underpinnings of. Uh, socialism, feminism, postmodern theory, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I take that, I took that into my, into my teaching, and uh, it was basically informing my uh, worldview as well. Right. So, so now, that's interesting. Um, so, I mean, you were, uh, you know, an advocate of, of a lot of these um, left-wing cultural studies ideas. Did you right. call yourself woke at the time? Well, that phrase wasn't out, you know. Yeah. 
even the phrase social justice wasn't really au courant at that time. And for example, something like uh, 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 toxic masculinity was not, right. was not a, it was not a phrase in circulation during my academic uh, studies. At that time, it was something like uh, phalo logocentrism, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Phalo logocentrism. Phalo lo- yeah, right. phalo logocentrism. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, so it's it's as as the um, ideology w- was morphing to what it is today. Uh, yeah, I, you found yourself at odds with it, and um, right. not only theoretically, but it affected um, it, it, it affected your professional life very oh, seriously. Yeah. yeah. When I became a critic at NYU of social justice, ideology and identity politics and uh, what we now call wokeness, uh, I faced a, a, an immediate backlash from colleagues and the administration to the point where they pushed, pushed me onto a paid leave of absence, condemned me in an open letter uh, in the student newspaper basically tarnished my reputation forever in academia and uh, drove me to the margins of the university, moved my office to the Russian department. I was uh, universally shunned by 100 uh, faculty members in my department. Uh, I was pushed into what I call my own personal gulag uh, in the Russian department where they would not move my books. And I sat in an empty room with metal shelves, uh, totally isolated. Wow, wow, uh, and so so that's that's really interesting because it's um it's not that you know you you were a a conservative um you know English um, scholar um you know that that was constantly battling um with the the left and you know so you, it's it's not just like another right winger conservative or or uh, you know Christian or or some sort of privileged white male. Uh, right, that your privilege is being taken away. It, it, this was something. So you were you, you were like one of them, and then because what you asked difficult questions or or you questioned certain things that they just wouldn't have it. Is, is that it? Yeah, that's right. I was farther left than the people that actually came out against me at the mm-hmm. moment that I made the critiques that I did. I was a left communist, you know, and, right. and these people were just identity politickers, you know. So. I was actually further left than them. That's the real irony. So mm-hmm. I critiqued identity politics. I said that the uh, the craziness of the identity politics of the left, for example, was an alt-right generator, you know? That's yeah. what I, I was saying that it was generating the alt-right, in effect, by virtue of its own insanity and things like that. This is what they took real offense to. Oh, wow, things wow. Like yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and um, and it's it's parallel uh, to a lot of other people on the left who've been criticizing uh, identity politics, like uh, Jimmy Dore, uh, who I really love in the U.S. Uh, you have George Galloway in the U.K. with his Workers Party, um, Brendan O'Neill uh, from Spike, who also was a Marxist, and and they you know have a, a very heavy I, critique, critique of identity politics. One, I think it was Brendan O'Neill, he said, you know, they, they allow every identity possible except your class identity. Right. <laughs> and, uh, right. and they allow, the, your, 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 so they allow the class exploitation to continue 
and it's, it's sort of a, a mask for it. W- would you say your your criticism is kind of along those lines, or a little? It was different? it was slightly different. I I wrote as a as a uh, Marxist. I wrote an essay called "What's Wrong with Identity Politics," and my argument was that instead of liberating the people that that, that were in the categories of uh, the subordinated categories that it actually served to reify the categories and, and actually solidify their containment within those categories instead of liberating them from the categories, which I thought was the real, should be the real objective, because if the categories are the problem, then why, get, why not get rid of the categories themselves instead of reinforcing them through grievance studies and things like that? After all, if people are... You know, in, in, in what's been called grievance studies since the, uh, you know, the uh, article by, uh, I should say, the big giant, you know, multiple spoof, uh, sort of like the Sokol hoax redux of the, yeah. the three scholars, uh, Pluckbrose and Bogosian, uh, and I forget the third guy. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, in fact, this is grievance studies, is if, if those scholars were if those people that those scholars were writing about happened to be liberated from those categories, what would, what would they have to do? Uh, their, their, their enterprise would be kaput. So my, my point was in that essay, uh, what's wrong with identity politics, and it's still up on my website, by the way, I, I argued that, these, uh, that identity politics aimed only at uh, the equality of the categories, supposedly, rather than what would be more important would be universal human emancipation, which would require liberation from the categories themselves. Right. Now, you, you speak about liberation from the categories and, you know, people on on that identity politics left, let's say, um, a lot of them speak about abolishing whiteness. Um, w- would you say that that lines up with your project? It would have, but... The thing is that those people are effectively saying they want to abolish whiteness, but they don't want to abolish any of the other categories. Right. So they're trying to affect a kind of inversion of the social hierarchy. Whether they know it or not, that's what it would amount to. And that's what it is amounting to, an inversion ideology. It's, it's a, an inversion ideology based on a kind of resentment, using yeah. Nietzschean expression. And they want to liberate people. Uh, they want to eradicate whiteness, I should say, without eradicating any of the so-called subordinate identities. Therefore, what they would end up with is merely a kind of uh, inversion of the social uh, hierarchy as they see it. Yeah. So it's yeah, not egalitarian at base. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the, the title of your book, uh, Beyond Woke. So can you explain what you mean by beyond woke and why it's important? Sure. It would be important to say that, first of all, that phrase is used by the woke, the woke crowd themselves. And I was trying to fool a few of them into buying the book, frankly. <laughs> uh, and um, they mean by it sort of like a supercharged hyper wokeness. You know, I've gone beyond just being woke and I'm really woke, you know. <laughs> Uh, and I am so woke that I know how woke you are and you're not woke enough and so on and so forth. For me, it was rather something different. It's kind of like analogous to Beyond Good and Evil in which Nietzsche's arguing about, you know, surpassing morality. I'm talking about the supersession of wokeness, 
something that's not not subsequent to it, but superior to it, something that is over over it, you know, very over it. And I mean by that that wokeness is about herd compulsion, herd a herd mentality and a compulsion to behave a certain way according to the dictates of groupthink. Whereas I don't believe that moral behavior can be attained through compulsion of the herd, that it's an individual matter. And so to be truly moral is to be on, is to be beyond woke and to be truly free is to be beyond woke. Right. Right. So, so that's, that's interesting that, um, so it, it's, uh, Again, in some ways, I suppose, is it? Am I? Would I be right to say that you you may share some of the ultimate goals of of let's say you know liberation from oppression? It's not that you're you're against that, um, but that you know this wokeness is is something else. It, it's a herd men, it, it's a herd mentality, etc. As, as you described, and and to be beyond woke is is not necessarily um to reject you know the i i suppose the, the goals of liberation no but 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 to reject that whole pa- paradigm or path is that uh, yeah, that's correct I, yes i call wokeness woke woke totalitarianism right. i i don't think it is any way liberatory at all i think it actually is very 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 much and oppression in itself, it's a form of control. It's a form of, uh, it's a totalitarian impulse behind it. And it's a way of destroying people. It's not, it has nothing to do with liberating anybody. It's a means of destruction of people, of the so-called enemies. It, it isn't even really aiming at the liberation of the people that it claims to be uh, liberating or hopes to liberate because in effect, they're used as tools, mostly to, to, to destroy the, the supposed enemies of those people. So the, the real objective is not the people that they claim to, to, to uh, who's, who's, on whose behalf they claim to be operating. The real objective is the destruction of the so-called enemies of those people. Um, right. So that's really the objective, I think. You know, that's, that's interesting. Uh, in your critique, you're talking about the totalitarian impulse. Uh, because, you know, on the left, I, I myself, you know, was a, you know, I, I suppose you could say I was a former communist Marxist in the 1980s and 90s. And, um, and yeah, what, one, of the th- one of the criticisms of, of Marxism and socialism and communism is that, you know, all right, the, the ideals of... of I suppose, you know, justice and the ending of oppression uh, is, is great. Um, but communism is in effect a totalitarian ideology and it, it yes. actually crushes people. And, and whatnot. So as, as a left winger, yeah. uh, were you, uh, you know, as a Marxist, uh, as someone who wrote, you know, Marxist tracts and so forth, uh, were you um, uh, also critical of the totalitarianism within Marxism or, or the communist groups that you were part yes. of? Yes, I was a left communist, and that, that is, I, I was a, a left or libertarian communist who was very critical of the Bolsheviks and their, what, I, what I thought was their usurpation of a working-class movement and this, the establishment of a party dictatorship, which is 
which is and then became a state uh, dictatorship, I believe that that was that was an actual, uh, you know, betrayal of the Marxist uh, ideology that it was not necessarily the case and that it, it wasn't the object of Marxism. So I, I thought that those people had usurped Marxist ideas and used them to affect a political dictatorship, whereas it wasn't necessary, I thought. I don't think right. that anymore. I think it's always, there's, it's, it, it necessarily leads to totalitarianism. Right, right. Yeah, I, I understand that too, because, you know, I, I, I was also critical of the Soviet Union and, um, you know, I, I had aligned myself with many independent Marxists and humanist Marxists. You used to write for um, uh, some of these journals and, and organs that were humanist Marxists and whatnot, right? Right, I did. I worked. I wrote for a humanist Marxist uh, website. Um, I wrote. I worked. I wrote for Insurgent Notes, which was a left communist uh, group. Uh, I wrote for uh, a, a basically just a leftist group, uh, leftist uh, magazine called North Star, which is now mm-hmm. out of circulation, I believe. Uh, so yeah, I were I wrote for um, a lot of uh, Marxist groups. And pay, uh, you know, and their websites and stuff like that. But right. I, my, my scholarship was in another area; it was in secularism. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I did. Sort of para. That was sort of my para professional or vocational work. Okay, okay. And um, uh, in in terms of uh, let's see your um, uh, your your PhD work and secularization. That's interesting. Um, does that have any bearing on, uh, on, on your essays in beyond woke? I mean, cause, yes. cause I know you, you do speak about, you know, religious, uh, you know, salvation and these sort of ideas that, that sort of run through the wokeness. Yes. Uh, in fact, I level a critique on social justice ideology or, and wokeness, uh, from the secularist standpoint of that, that they are religious in, in nature and that that's fine. You can have whatever religion you want, but those religions should not be dominating public institutions, for example, especially in the United States where there's a separation clause. Uh, and they should, they should be identified as religious as such. And I'm basically arguing in different places in those essays, and I've argued this in so, so Springtime for Snowflakes as well, but what we need is a post-secular standpoint, uh, post-secular standpoint in which we have a super, supervening neutral arbiter rather than some sort of a social justice arbiter of these institutions so that they're not operating, uh, you know, under a sort of veiled religious uh, pretense. Right, right. You know, you know um, when you, you you had adopted your moniker, the uh, anti-PC NYU prof, um, were you a Marxist at the time? At the very you, beginning, yes, I was. Uh, so I, what, I, what I find interesting then is uh, just your thought process, uh, because anti-PC was usually used by people on the right. That's right. Um, and uh, so you had still considered yourself on the left, but you yeah. you use that sort of moniker. So what what was your thinking at the time? Well, I wanted to critique, you know, social justice and identity politics, 
and, and, and to critique them from the left, but I was sort of playing with them uh, by virtue of calling myself anti-PC, and I wanted to show that you didn't need to be right-wing to be anti-PC, that in fact you could be left and be anti-PC because PC ideology or PC culture, PC uh, enforcement was very uh, dictatorial. And I, I, dis- I disdained that in itself. I disdained dictatorial ideologies. I, my, my enemy was always totalitarianism. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's why I adopted that moniker. And then I started to tweet these things. And, and then whenever, you know, these critiques of like the bias reporting hotlines in the university, the, the safe spaces, the trigger warnings, the no platforming of speakers... And then when I did, you know, they, um, they picked up on it. The newspaper, NYU newspaper reporter, uh, the student newspaper reporter wanted an interview. I did the interview, you know, within two days of doing that interview, I was uh, pushed out of the university. Well, I put, pushed into a paid leave of absence. I was very strongly coerced into it and then condemned by this group called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group, who, who really lambasted me in these Orwellian terms. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it was like a tribunal, and they actually declared me guilty. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Kafka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. And uh, so then what happened is I started to see the totalitarian impulses behind leftism in general. And, and it just, you know, and I recall this in my essay in, in Beyond Woke, it's called first as tragedy, then as farce, or mm-hmm. how I left Marxism. And in that essay, I recall how it was the totalitarian, you know, under, underbelly of leftism that lay just beneath this egalitarian veneer that really scared me the hell out of it. And right. it, woke, it woke me up. It was a trauma. So yeah. I, re- I really don't think that people change their worldviews uh, based on simply argumentation or something like that. I really think trauma or uh, uh, is really or something like trauma is, is necessary for these kind of a gestalt shifts that I had. And I had a gestalt shift. It just all switched almost instantaneously. It was just like an immediate, you know, pivot. And I saw the world entirely differently. It was really quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, I really identify um, with that. Uh, you know, we we are around the same age. And right. yeah, growing up in the 70s and 80s, to be a free thinker kind of led you to Marxism. That's right. It was, you know, it was a kind of, uh, you know, outre. It, it, it was taboo. Right. And so. So a lot of free thinkers went there. But uh, but then as you discovered, as, as you say, uh, Underneath the surface, they're not really free thinkers. No. Yeah, is that, that's what you found, is it? I found it to be absolutely prohibitive of free thought. That, mm-hmm. in fact, you had to embrace, embrace, repeat, rehearse, and regurgitate a certain point of view and perspective constantly. And everything had to be seen in the same way that everybody had to adopt the same positions with reference to everything. And that, you know, there was this whole set of uh, ideas that you must adhere to. And if you deviated from any of them, you were, you were in deep doo-doo, you know? 
Uh, yeah. You'd be attacked and, and everything else. So, yeah, I found that it was just prohibitive of, of free thought. Right. Now, to get back to the to the uh, book, so the book is is a collection of essays that were written between 2016 and 2020. You cover things, themes like social justice, postmodern theory, political correctness, socialism, communism, corporate socialism. These are some of the things you talk about. Now, during that period, you also wrote um, two substantial books. A Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and Its Postmodern Parentage, and also The Google Archipelago, The Digital Gulag, and The Simulation of Freedom. So how, how does this um, uh, book relate uh, to the, how does this collection of essays relate to both of those books? Does it give a kind of background to them? Uh, well, it, it overlaps. Yeah. It overlaps uh, somewhat with some of them. Uh, it overlaps with springtime for snowflakes in that I, I do go over my, I do have essays in there that in beyond woke that uh, recapitulate to some extent the history that I underwent at, uh, in academia, uh, particularly at NYU, but it it doesn't go into the deep theory uh, in the way that springtime for snowflakes does springtime for snowflakes is a memoir of my academic career and that is inclusive of my uh, graduate work. And those are the real, that's the real meat of that book, chapters five and six, very deep, go into very deep theoretical waters to right. try to find the roots of uh, social justice ideology. In Beyond Woke, I do treat some of that, but from a much more colloquial uh, perspective, uh, language-wise and so forth. So you don't have to have a PhD in theory to understand what I'm talking about, although I tried to break things down as well as I could in springtime for snowflakes so that it would obviate that as well. But it also treats other topics, uh, like, for example, uh, corporate socialism, uh, which I really don't get into. That's something I developed later. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do go into how I left Marxism. I do go into uh, more critiques of social justice. There's a history of social justice in there in Beyond Woke. Uh, which traces it all from all the way back to 1842 uh, when it's first used mm-hmm. uh, by Luigi Tapparelli, the Jesuit uh, priest. Yeah. And uh, there, there's a lot more in there. I think it's kind of a nice compendium of works. They're all standalone essays. They can be read in any order. Uh, you know, some of them are two pages. Some of them are 25. Uh, there, right. There's a lot of scholarly work in there, but it's it's not... There's no technical academic uh, jargon as such. Would you say there's a a centerpiece essay in in the collection or maybe a core of essays? Yeah, I mean, I think the best essay in there is called uh, First as Tragedy, Then as Farce, or How I Left Marxism. And that goes into the history of uh, my my departure from Marxism, but it goes into it from the standpoint of... uh, of reading uh, Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, and then comparing my experience to his. Can you just elaborate uh, on that a bit for us here? Sure. Uh, You know, so Whitaker Chambers writes about how in um, the the Soviet Union, there was this German uh, Marxist who traveled to the Soviet Union, and and he uh, he was over there 
And and one night he heard the screaming of people that were being drug out. Some, somebody was being drug out of their home, probably taken to the gulag or about to be executed or something like that. One of the two. And it just snapped his consciousness. And he just said, that was it. That was all it took. So I talk about how I heard screaming as well. It was different. It wasn't certainly, I wasn't living in a socialist or a Soviet state. I wasn't living under communism, so to speak. But I heard screams. I heard they were directed at me uh, from the left. And it just snapped my consciousness open. You know, it just sort of, it was very surreptitious. It got under the surface of, of and past the sort of, uh, you know, ideological uh, steel, uh, you know, iron, iron curtain, if you will, and, and, and just penetrated deeply into my psyche and, and totally reoriented me. So that, that's really what I talk about. And, and I thought that uh, Chambers uh, had the best take on why people become communists and, and why they leave it. And, and I found that it was very parallel to my own experience. Right, right. And as you say, I mean, you know, the essays, um, you know, are, are very long, like I think 20 pages might be um, one of the longer ones. And then sometimes very short, like just like a couple pages. In fact, I, I think it's your shortest one. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> uh, that, I, that really resonates with me, that, that particular story. Um, Ziad Ahmed, can you just... Um, go through that a little and because uh, I, I want to discuss some of the issues with it. Yeah, there was a student and this is a real, st- a true story who applied to Stanford. I think it was in the year uh, 2017 or 18 to become a freshman at Stanford, you know, for his, his admission to the, to the university. And they, they and on the admissions essay question, what matters to you and why uh, this student wrote, hashtag Black Lives Matter a hundred times and was admitted to the university. And he boasted about this on his in Twitter account. And he, he, he actually posted a, a copy of the essay, you know, as a PDF or, or a uh, pick. And it showed that that was the content of his essay. And to me, that just utterly underscored what the universities were looking for now. They're actually looking for people to be slogan repeaters. They're looking for people to be singers in the social justice choir. They're looking for people to do exactly what people are doing in these universities, which are running around screaming at people. And it's not, it's not at all intellectual inquiry whatsoever. It's complete regurgitation of certain phrases. I mean, that's how base and low it's gotten. It's just unbelievable. So I, 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 Mm-hmm. I, wrote a, uh, I wrote a fictional response to him from, quote-unquote, Stanford University, which some people take for a real response. It's too mm-hmm. ludicrous to be real, but it, must, it may as well be the answer, I mean, the response that they gave him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, um, that, that whole episode, too, it, it, it underscored uh, so many of the, the contradictions uh, of the movement, too, because... The guy who did it, Ziad Ahmed, uh, I I sort of looked I looked into his background because because I just found that particular story to be so um, incredible. And you see, and and it, it points to so many things. Stephen Saylor, Steve Saylor, um, wrote a tweet in response to it, which I thought was great. And 
He said, you know, insufferably ambitious non-black scion of hedge fund tiger dad rides Black Lives Matter from Princeton Day School to Stanford. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. Right? This guy's dad was the CEO of Citibank, right? Oh, my so God. I, you see, now, I... I being, you know, I having grown up in Toronto of immigrant parents, yeah, I, I I've seen a lot of immigrants ride on the civil rights narrative, mm. right, which I think is totally wrong. Right, the experience of an immigrant is not the same as a descendant of an American slave, right, and and that whole struggle, um, you know is sort of marginalized in, in these, um, uh, Steve Saylor puts it well, you know, these, these tiger, um, these tiger children, right. You, you know, the whole thing about the tiger moms, these very ambitious Asian immigrants, right. Uh, high performing, very wealthy. You know, so, so he's using black lives matter. Unbelievable. To get into Stanford. Unbelievable. Or, or Yale. Yeah, right. I didn't know about his background. I was just looking at it from the standpoint of their their acceptance of this was just unbelievable to me. Exactly, and so you see how it's being played, mm-hmm. right? Because now he's just aping these things. Stanford right. is saying, "Oh, great, uh, <laughs> we're so proud to have you." And here's this guy running. Um, uh, what, what what do they call it? Uh, he he he's he's running all these kind of fake little consultancies for Generation Z and diversity and like that are just on paper only and collecting all this money and and he's just he's doing TEDx talks. He's just so transparently fake and ambitious. And this is just the new thing. If it, if it was the eighties, he'd be like greed is good. Right, but now right. it's Black Lives Matter. Right, isn't that interesting? That's a great way of putting it. If this was the '80s, he'd be saying greed is good. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah excellent <laughs> way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, just, it, it's just a shibboleth that he's mouthing in order to get ahead. Yeah, it's just um, it's just pure naked ambition, and these people at Stanford can't even tell the difference. They can't tell the difference, but if even if it was a, a black student that wrote that, I think it's a ludicrous response. That's right. I mean, shouldn't the essay be an argument rather than some sort of a repetition of a phrase of a, of a, of a social justice, uh, you know, uh, mantra? I mean, it's just ludicrous. Exactly, and 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 it's going to take all sorts of weird permutations because of this, because it's just playing into the same old power games. That that we've that we've known about, and and this just becomes a, a, a whole new kind of uh, yeah. Um, he's new- using the Black Lives mo- Movement as a kind of human shield in order to be, you know, in order to uh, it's running interference for him in order for his ascent into uh, the stratosphere of uh, of uh, you know uh, diversity, uh, you know consultancy and on, on that's and on. right unbelievable yeah I, I just one more thing from from sailor who's very politically incorrect but he's really good sometimes he, he, he had a, a title for one of his responses to this is i for one welcome our new shamelessly black exploiting white hating tiger child overlords <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Well, one of now uh, one of the things in your your book too, uh, you have these theoretical um, 
these theoretical pieces that, that go into you know a, a lot of depth in, in that way. You have you know some of these like snippets like this showing some of the absurdities um, in the movement. But you also have, uh, and I suppose that it's part of your springtime for snowflakes um, kind of methodology as well, if you want to call it that. Uh, but you have a lot of personal stories, like your yeah. experience at NYU, uh, your reflections on the degradation of the faculty, you yes. know, your history and Marxism, you know, even things like your uncomfortableness with being right wing. And, and then you also have a deeply personal account of your relationship with Sadie, yeah. uh, you know, which was quite moving as well, you know. Um, do you, you want to sort of go through uh any of them uh for us because i i think it's a and and you know even sort of why you you took this slant as well yeah sure i guess i'll i'll, I'll take the bait on the sadie one yeah. uh first of all that's not her real name but um mm-hmm. i wanted to to keep her anonymous uh for her benefit uh but uh, that was somebody that i basically ushered into academia uh, she was my 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 girlfriend, my my partner, if you will, and uh, she was a dancer and a choreographer in New York, and uh, we met and fell in love. And uh, she she really wanted to uh, become an academic because you know she saw the the insecurities of uh, be, being a choreographer and trying to to you know uh, make it that way forever. And you know she had done it, and uh, so I basically translated her dance career into academic terminology and and i put a i basically packaged her for academia let's put it that way and uh, got her helped her get a job at uh, a, a really well-respected little college uh in pennsylvania and you know a little private school and um and then when she got there <laughs> when she got there she became and she you know grew more and more insufferable by the day uh, she started to, she started like all these ridiculous statements about how she was a feminist. And, oh, by the way, the title of that essay is called, uh, uh, have you found that place that makes you want to swallow its rhetoric whole? Right. <laughs> and, uh, which was just something I picked off the internet by some feminist, uh, Marxist type. It was basically saying what, what she would accept for a mate and they couldn't say this or that and so on and so forth. Anyway, this really, she swallowed the rhetoric whole, I, mm-hmm. I should say, of, of everything. And she became insufferable. Uh, all of a sudden, she was a radical feminist. Uh, she started seeing us, what I call a fainting couch feminist therapist. Uh, she, she became the, you know, the archetypical prototype, you know, archetypical uh, social justice warrior type. And it, it was just unbelievable. So our, our breakup really had to do with that. It, it was all coming at the same time that I was coming out against it. So, you know, it just really, it just, it, it, it all reached, the, it, it all reached the peak at the same time. So at the moment I was, I was, my relationship with NYU became very fraught. A parallel to that, it was happening in my personal life. So I really had a lot of upheaval at once. It was quite a traumatic time. So yeah, I read about yeah. that in that, that essay. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, you you were very you know um, open and, and revealing about it because I mean, e- even 
your relationship with Sadie as it started, I mean, your your marriage was breaking up and troubled and you and, and you went right. through that in the essay. And so so you you got together in a tumultuous time and then, you know, and and there were all sorts of uh, you know, um episodes and, and ups and downs that, that you relate. Uh, um it, it was a point I mean the what I sort of got from it in reading it too was that you're you're kind of showing um, the personal consequences of this ideology, the way it manifests itself in people's life histories, yes. and, and causes this severe interruptions and and yes. problems. Kind of is, yeah. is that what you're trying to show? Yes, absolutely. It, it actually penetrated my personal life. Uh, it it, it uh, and and it caused a lot of problems, like. She started to see a feminist therapist during the same time. A real, right. as a matter of fact, her psychiatrist was the was was the person who was now the uh, the head of uh, health services in Pennsylvania. The person calling the shots on the COVID crisis. I can't okay. remember her name. Uh, it was a, actually it's a trans person. Uh, that was her psychiatrist. Uh, her her therapist was also a radical. Uh, feminist, and all of a sudden her language use all started to change, and so did our whole relationship history. She started using different ways of talking about it. All of a sudden, words like abuse came in, and she had never, and there was nothing abusive about our relationship, but now all of a sudden these new words uh, came in and so she reframed the whole relationship in a different in, with different terms, and it ruined it. You know, as soon as that word abuse was introduced, that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, it it it, it really showed in a very deeply personal way. You know, some of the insights of Orwell about language, how language right. itself shapes reality. Yeah, absolutely. Once the language changes and the words meanings change, and and uh, there's a certain dictatorial use of language that has to be abided by. You know, you're on your way to to a very uh, totalitarian way of being, and it it starts to alter reality. Absolutely. By the way, uh, just out of interest, did uh, Sadie actually read your piece? I have no idea. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I I want to point out a connection I see between Sadie and Zaid Ahmed. <laughs> uh, because you know, you talk about Sadie being a radical feminist, right? And and I mean, the, the story you present is, is so rich with detail. That that's what makes it so uh, interesting as well. So, right, so you know, she became a radical feminist, but she was a spoiled, um, you know, a oh, spoiled yeah. privilege, right? So so um, so again, she was riding all of this, you know, and, and then totally. she, she got on, yeah, onto this um, manicured kind of university campus that you've always aspired to, right. and, you know, and she was there. And uh, she rode so, my. First of all, she rode my coattails. I wrote right. every, every document she ever submitted to her college, every one, right. all the way through the all the way through. The the, yeah. uh, the tenure file, every document in her tenure file as well. Right, right. Yeah, you you were you know the the story goes through that, and and again, what what I see in that is is these amoral social climbers. Right, right? 
these right. amoral social climbers, both in Zayed Ahmed and in, in Sadi, as you describe her, um, and uh, who are just using this ideology. As, this is just the thing today. And as I said, if it was in the 80s, they'd be, you know, uh, corporate, you know, greed is good, uh, you know, capitalism is the best or whatever. But whatever it is, is, is the, um, you know, the, the ideology of, of corporatism today. They're on it. Yeah, and it absolutely. just happens that SJWism is the corporate ideology of today. So, Quran, so, let me give you an example of how, how she was. Like, we would go to a swimming pool, okay, in the, in the mm-hmm. suburb of, of, of a small town in Pennsylvania. I won't say which one. It'll give away her college and then her. Right. And if there weren't any black people at the pool, she would go, there's no black people here. And I'd be like, so? <laughs> I mean, so she, yeah. she, she used black people as a kind yeah. of fixture, as a kind of fixture for her self-approval, uh, her own self-esteem, a way of, of giving herself credits, you know, yeah. social credits, if you will, for having the right point of view, for having the right ideology. So black people weren't people. They were just sort of figments or fixtures that she would use to assuage her, to assuage her guilt or conscience, and as a way uh, of 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 having the right identification uh, criteria, uh, and so forth. Just unbelievable. I I would say, so what? I mean, what are you using them for? Yeah. You know exactly. <laughs> And, and, and this kind of, uh, the, the sort of amoral social climber thing that I see in both of those, those examples, uh, and, and it's alignment with the corporate ideology of the day. Right. right? You, you speak to, to that, uh, a lot in, in the book. Many of your essays deal with, uh, what do you call it? Woke capitalism. Woke and, capitalism. And you, you have other terms as well you use sometimes, but you, do you want to kind of go through your, your arguments, um, with that? Yeah, sure. So I started looking into this phenomenon of woke capitalism. So why are these corporations mouthing, uh, you know, these, these bromides, you know, these social justice bromides? And why are they, why are they suddenly embracing leftism? After all, let's face it, you and I know the fraught relations between the left and corporations across, <laughs> across history, right? So what's going on here? I was trying to figure it out. So look at some of the explanations, you know, given by Rostad Thought and uh, who've coined the term and then others, but they weren't satisfactory to me. So yeah. I saw that there was actually that, that strangely enough, this new leftism aligns perfectly well with their own corporate interests. Uh, mm-hmm. That in fact, uh, all of these, uh, these prongs on the new leftist, uh, uh, play sheet or, or ideological uh, doctrine align perfectly with corporate interests right now. Uh, no borders, uh, you know, globalism. Uh, yeah, cheap uh, labor. Cheap labor. Uh, uh, also, uh, the new identity categories, you know, this is new niche markets for corporations. Let's face yeah. it. Uh, yeah. So on and so forth. So I just lined up all of the the two, you know, like more or less in my mind, in, in a parallel columns, right? And I saw bingo, you know, yeah. this, is not, this is not some sort of just mere placation. They're not just placating these people. This actually works for them. Yeah. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, so that's why I called it corporate socialism. And I thought, what is the ultimate objective here? And why are corporations actually, corporations, capitalist corporations, actually spewing socialist ideology? Yeah. I was thinking they are. I mean, I'm like, what the hell? Exactly. <laughs> and it makes sense if you think about it, because what they're looking for is more or less de facto monopolies on top and, quote unquote, actually existing socialism for everybody else. Right. Uh, and that is a kind of, you know, de facto so-called equality between all of the all the masses and their domination or monopolization at the top, you know. And in fact, that's what seems to be going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's it's a really important phenomenon to look at, and I know other people like like you said, um, Ross uh, Duthat. Is, is that how to pronounce Potter, it? Yeah, I think I said yeah. <laughs> And um, Anand Giridharadas talking about um, uh, about billionaires, you know, using um, uh, charity and all that as a cover as they continue to rape and exploit um, the world. Right. Um, it, it's 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 really uh, interesting and and important. Uh, another kind of paradoxical thing that you've put together, you know, like woke capitalism, is Google Marxism. Yeah, uh, yeah. You want to kind of uh, go through that a little? Well, it's very similar, but it's 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 the way that why you know I started looking at why is Google such a left wing group? I mean, why are they such a left wing you know police agent? Why why are they policing the web? Uh, why are they, base, you know, basically slanting all of their results? Why are they blacklisting, you know, verboten right wing or other than leftist uh, websites? Why are they? What are they up to? Why? Why did they try to uh, make sure that Donald Trump's, uh, uh, you know, the arguments in favor of Trump would be either delisted or debunked or way, you know, listed way down at the bottom. What was going on here? And to me, it's, it's very much the same thing. Their Google Marxism is just the, the internet version of corporate socialism. Right. Yeah. Now, on the New Brooks Network, a, a large part of our audience uh, are faculty members, grad students. Um, so a lot of university people, a lot of people who would probably, you know, be on the uh, SW, SJW side. Um, Hello. Hi, people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what, one of, I, I think an interesting um, chapter essay you, you have in this, uh, which which resonated with me because, you know, I, I witnessed it too as an academic, um, the destruction of the faculty. Right. Uh, just, just the whole story. I mean, I, I can give you my stories of how I saw the, the, the faculty just degrading over, you know, the time I was there as well. Um, uh, why don't you just, uh, I, I think that should be of interest, um, to a lot of the listeners here especially maybe the ones that have been in academia for a while and have seen some of these changes themselves. Yeah. I mean, it just, I, there were many episodes that I recount in that chapter that showed to me that, that intellectual and academic qualifications came to mean less and less over time and that identities uh, were premium, you know, and that 
tokenism was pro- was prominent, that, that tokenism was being used to promote people. And I think, first of all, let me premise this by saying, or preface, I should say, I, I want to yeah. preface this by saying that I think that excellence is found in every category of human being, okay? Mm-hmm. And that there is no question in my mind that excellent scholars can be found from any group. But it seemed to me that there was a hasty use of people as tokens and, and no regard at all for their qualifications. And I yeah. saw people being hired that were couldn't write a sentence, you know, and uh, passing over other people based on their identities. And then all kinds of other sort of uh, ledger domain going on with people being uh, promoted and hired on the basis of uh, their connections and cronyism and uh, just hideous sorts of, uh, you know, egregious hirings of people like somebody that was hired that had no teaching experience, no publications, no advanced degree beyond the BA in some mediocre mid-states college. And yet they were hired over PhDs in English that had come from the top 10 universities in the world, in the world. Yeah. And what was going on here? You know? So yeah, I talked about that and I tried to explain what I think is happening and why it's happening. I won't give all that away, but it's in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I I could uh, I could definitely identify with that and I'm sure a lot of listeners can too. Some of these really questionable hires and then you sort of hear the contributions they make at faculty meetings or whatever and you're like, "My god." Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just so it's so bad. I mean, they're just, and, and, and as I said, listen, I mean, there are really smart people out there and it really doesn't, it does a disservice to the people, the groups that they're trying to help. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, that to me is the worst part of it because yeah. what it does is, is shed skepticism. And I, I sort of a Shelby Steele sort of uh, critique here, and you know, it, it, mm. it, it makes everybody skeptical of every black person or every uh, support, you know, every yeah. person that comes from disadvantaged circumstances. That's because right. Especially, uh, based, you know, identity categories that are vaunted today. Yeah. It makes you look as, askance at every single person, and which you shouldn't do. You shouldn't have this overriding skepticism. So if excellence was the criteria rather than identity, then we wouldn't have this problem. Exactly. And, and you know, it, as you say, it, it does sort of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's totally counterproductive because especially, let's say, a white person doesn't have a lot of exposure in their personal life. Maybe that's becoming less and less now, but, but certainly it was before, you know, uh, to, to people from, you know, other backgrounds. And right. then the only one they have is this underqualified, you know, nincompoop who, who's, right. you know, in your um, in your faculty. It's, it's not going to, you know, reflect well on, on oh. their general impression at it all. Doesn't, it doesn't affect well. Yeah, they'll still start thinking, oh, I see. This is the best that group has. And, yeah. and that's just not true. That's you know, right. It's exactly. just not true. So it's a sad circumstance. And it's really hastily done. It's it's really sloppy administration. It's just the sloppy plugging and playing of social group, uh, you know, identity politics as a as the main uh, sort of a rule under which all of this is conducted. You know, instead of mm-hmm. instead of a kind of indis- you know a kind of indiscriminate uh, search for excellence, which I think has to be first. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, let's. where do you see wokeness going? Um, well, you see where it's going, right? Right now. I yeah. mean, it's, it's why I call it woke, woke totalitarianism. It's going insane. Um, it's becoming violent. It's, uh, it is becoming cancel culture to the max. Uh, you yeah. see people being canceled from editors' positions at the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, other other papers, all uh, magazines all over the country. People that make any kind of flub verbally, any phrase that's off, is suddenly gone. I mean, this is really uh, we're we're in a we're in a China we're in a Maoist cultural revolution of sorts. Yeah, uh, and a Soviet sort of. Uh, you know, and if you think that cancel culture is new, take a look at the Soviet Union in China. Yeah, it's not new at all. It's, yeah, I, that's I, where I, we're on. We're in a really bad place. Whereas it's gotten to the point that you 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 know free free thought is absolutely verboten. Really. Hmm. I mean, do do you think that um, you know there there'll be uh, a resistance against it that would break it down? Will it collapse under its, its own contradictions? Will they eat themselves? Or, or you know, or, or you know... Or well, they're eviscerating the culture. Yeah. yeah, they're eviscerating the culture as it is, right? So we're going to reach a real kind of low state of cultural meaning and, and potential and viability, whereas it's just going to destroy so much that they'll be left with will be left with a kind of ruins and a ruins a cultural and civilizational ruins that will have to, then we'll see who reconstructs it from there right um, yeah I think it's just going to lead to a total evisceration of uh, of our society I'm sorry to say yeah 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 well if, would you say that there's a, a message from this book, this collection of essays that you'd like to leave your readers with? Yes. Get beyond woke. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's both, it's both a by a byline and, and an admonition. <laughs> I, one, uh, are there any uh, projects you're working on right now? I know you're, you're writing a new book. I'm writing a novel actually. A novel. Okay. Yeah. I'm 20 chapters into it. It's probably 25 long. It's called, okay. uh, it's called uh, Collective Mind Virus. And, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's sci-fi. Uh, it is dystopian, but I won't give away the ending. Uh, sure. It's about retaining the individual in a round, you know, which is an individual's who are under constant threat of the self-erasure. Um, by an overwhelming power structure of conformity and mind con- thought control, which is done in this book through technology. Yeah. You, you can just uh, get your material from the newspapers now, can you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I have, I let my imagination run, and I'm not even a reader of science fiction, frankly. So I don't know where it overlaps with other things, and I'm glad I don't because that would inhibit me. I don't, oh, no, that's been said before. I just... I set up the world, I, it cre- creates the certain constraints and circumstances, and then I let the plot unfold from there. Great, great. Yeah, um, 
so so we look forward to that coming out. Um, you, you said you're almost finished? Yeah, I'm almost finished. Okay, good, good. So for your listeners that, uh, you know, want to get, uh, you know, in touch with you and your work, um, how, how, do you have a, a website? Uh, yeah, I know it's, it's uh, my, everything can be found at michaelreptonwall.com. It can, it'll connect you to my, all my essays that aren't published in, in the Beyond Woke uh, book or elsewhere. Well, all the, there's a lot of published essays on there. It's just they're not in Beyond Woke. Uh, all of my interviews, this will be on, this interview will be listed all my media um, uh, sayings that I've had that I think are quite pithy and interesting, uh, photo gallery of my readers and uh, friends and famous friends, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Michael Rectonwald, that's R-E-C-T-E-N-W-A-L-D.com. Great, great. And we'll definitely put a link um, in, it, in the blog accompanying this uh, interview. But yeah, Michael, I want to thank you so much for this. You know, as usual, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Once again, the book is Beyond Woke, published by the New English Review Press. And we've been speaking to the author, Michael Rechtenwald. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Kirk. Bye-bye. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, Remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.